you don't have your uh, Bibles open to 1 Peter, please turn there. And this morning, we are going to be looking at really an overview of the book and introducing the book in a way that explores the theme that we said is the, the title or the, the theme of the book, Stand Firm in Grace. There are many ways that we could look at this. Um, we could, in fact, we thought maybe we should read through the entire book. Thanks. And just pause briefly and make some observations as we see how Peter is developing this study or this theme. We talked about it briefly and realized we probably don't have enough time this morning to do that. Maybe another time. But instead, what I want to do this morning is highlight for us the the word, the idea, the concept of grace, as Peter uses it. There's one particular word in the Greek language, and many of you are familiar with that word. It comes to us sometimes as a name for young ladies or for women in our culture, charis or charis, grace. There's even a nice ring to that. There's a nice sound to that name and gentleness, uh, an aspect of compassion and love and kindness as you hear that name spoken. But grace is a concept that may be difficult for many of us to understand and get our minds around. I know it is for me. I don't know if if you've ever had this experience where maybe you go out somewhere and you are trying something new for the first time. Um, I remember when I was in college, my cousin invited me to come visit in, in Baltimore, Maryland, and he invited me to go golfing with him. And I had never been golfing before in my life. Now, putt-putt, but that doesn't really count, right? So I said, you know, Jay, I would love to come with you. I've never played before. I don't have clubs. I've never actually swung a golf club. You know, really, um, will you help me out? It's like, sure. So I go out, and I'm pretty sure it was a par-3 course. I'm not sure. It might have been a full-blown one. I don't know. At the very least, I know we played nine holes, and that was it. And... I don't remember the exact score, but I do remember I did not do very well at all. I think he, he gave me 10 or 12 balls, and I think I lost probably all of them by the time we got through all nine holes that day. Well, this trend continued in my life. I went back to college and had some friends that really enjoyed golfing. I said, Matt, come golfing with us. Like, I had all clubs. Never done it. Um, once now. That's right. Come on out. So I go, terrible swing, more lost balls everywhere on the course. So finally, I got this bright idea. I'm going to buy a book and read about how to play golf. You done this? Ever purchased a book thinking, okay, I I need help with this. I'm going to buy a book so I can learn how to do this skill. You read the book. You go try it. And maybe some things get better, but not a whole lot, right? But what really helps is when you have somebody, a coach, a mentor, somebody who comes along and says, yeah, you read that in a book, but let me show you what this actually looks like in real life. In high definition, so to speak. And the real action of swinging the club and, club and hitting the ball and knowing which club to use when and how. And I'm still not very good at it, but the few coaches I've had in my life, my friends, they've endured with me and helped me get better. Well, here Peter writes to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And many of them he has never met, it seems. 
seems like many of them came to faith in Jesus Christ when they were dwelling in Rome or one of the colonies of Rome, and now they're scattered throughout the Roman provinces. And Peter writes to them. And he writes to them of this idea about the true grace of God. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 2, here is Peter's desire expressed immediately to them. And I've given you three different translations of how they try to capture this desire, this, this prayer wish of Peter for all these people. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Or may grace and peace be yours in abundance. May grace and peace be yours in full measure. See, what Peter's doing with this letter, with this short book to these believers, his brothers and sisters in Christ who are scattered, he's wanting to come alongside as a true friend, as a mentor, as a coach. Someone, as Ethan already mentioned today, someone, as we looked at last week, as Steve unfolded the story, the narrative of Peter's life for us, and the reconciliation, he has experienced the grace and the mercy and the peace of God in his life. And he wants to write this letter as a way of coming alongside and and showing them, walking them through the the initial stages of their life or as they're growing in their Christian life. He wants to show them how do you experience God's grace? And how do you know it? And then how do you show it to other people? So here's his desire. And I love how Peter captures this immediately and And Paul gives many greetings like this as well, but Peter makes it explicit where where Paul might leave it left unsaid and who knows why all the reasons why Peter has written it this way, but here, these words, may it be multiplied to you, may you know it in abundance, may you have it in full measure. Peter's desire is that we would have this in extravagant, overwhelming ways. You know, if we could use the illustration of maybe being overwhelmed by water or going to the, to the beach, and we had some friends here that were in Florida at the beach, and, you know, the waves are coming in, and as you go, sometimes the waves come in, and they just hammer, and they hammer, and they hammer, and sometimes you just feel like you're drowning in these, in these waves. They're so powerful. It almost seems like this is exactly the, the sense that Peter wants us to have, that God's grace is so overwhelming. He wants you to know it. He wants you to swim in it. He almost wants you to drown in it. You're so overwhelmed by God's grace. Maybe the illustration is the times where we experience extravagant gifts. Some of you are anticipating weddings coming up. And you've sent out the invitations and you've registered at multiple stores. And you're just waiting for the flood of gifts to come in. This is a time of rejoicing. It's great. And many, most people enjoy giving gifts to you as well, so don't, don't feel bad about registering. Even for the expensive things, somebody will get it for you, or maybe a gift card, and it will all add up in the end. And you'll have this sense of overwhelming love being poured out on you, and hopefully every one of you at some point in your life has experienced this where, where somebody has just been so kind to you, whether it's a parent or a spouse or a friend, and they've seen a need in your life, and they have simply stopped to meet the need, and they've poured out kindness and generosity to you. This is like the idea that, that Peter's trying to get at, and that, that grace comes to us. We're going to define grace in just a second, and get kind of technical, but hopefully you can bear with me, but I want you to see this illustration. But also look at First Peter 
chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. And I won't read the whole thing again, but you heard Robert read it just a moment ago. But don't miss this. The grace that Peter wants us to experience comes through only one means. And it is the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we can talk about grace in maybe a humanistic sort of way or a secular sort of way where you extend grace to somebody else. And that might be a right use of the word, but really what Peter is talking about here, the only way that you can know the grace that he's speaking of is to know it through the means, the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, as you read through the book, you read through the letter, you see that grace is personified in Jesus Christ. We cannot know grace if we do not know Christ. So Peter pushes us towards that. Then at the end of the letter, and just to show you how important this is to Peter, he sort of envelopes the book. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then at the end, in chapter 5, verse 12, he writes, I have written briefly to you, and this book, this letter is brief, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Very easy to see why we came to this conclusion for our theme of this book. Stand firm in grace. Peter's desire is that we would know it in abundance and that we would not depart from it. We would stand firm in it, which essentially means is we understand grace through Christ. Essentially, this means then that we must stand firm in Christ, in his cross. All right, let's go back and just ask the question then. So, what is grace? What is grace? Maybe you've heard the short definition from um, an evangelistic presentation or a theological statement, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a great summary of God's grace. A great shorthand way of understanding it. But I want to talk to you briefly about the expansive, overwhelming range of this word grace. So I've given you this definition from a theological dictionary. So hopefully you can see that. The word or the vocabulary of grace connotes spontaneous kindness and acts of generosity grounded in dispositions of compassion towards those in need. And there's a lot going on there in this definition, but highlight this. It's God pouring out kindness and generosity to those who are in need. Grace as a characteristic of God grounds divine human relations in God's generous initiative and sustaining faithfulness that culminates in the powerful restorative act of God on behalf of humanity. Okay, what is he saying? He's saying, look, there is a need in humanity. There's something wrong, something broken in humanity that is so messed up that there's only one person and there's only one way that's going to be fixed. Is if God initiates and restores humans through his divine mercy and grace, which is powerful, which is powerful. He goes on and highlights this. Of course, the concept of grace, though, can be present in the text, and often it is, without the specific words of grace. And in this way, this is very true of the book of 1 Peter. 
We're going to see the word today. Grace, 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 grace. It's used ten times throughout this letter of First Peter, and there's a few other uh, nuances of the word that are mentioned as well, but, but throughout the book, the entire book, we can see it this way. Everything that Peter talks about is in the sphere, it's in the realm of grace. So when he gets to the end and he says, so stand firm in this, I've explained it to you, I've exhorted you in it, stand firm in it, what, he's, what is he speaking of? He's speaking of the entire letter, everything that I've talked to you about, this is God's grace, stand in it. Let me give you one more. From a biblical theological perspective, grace is fundamentally a word about God. His uncoerced initiative and pervasive, extravagant demonstrations of care and favor for all. Don't miss that as well. This is what we call God's common grace. God's common grace is poured out on everyone. So he says this, on the one hand, his favor is poured out indiscriminately to the ungrateful and the wicked, as seen in Luke 6.33, and the other, those who are in dire straits, the poor and the marginalized, can be assured that this compassion reaches especially to them. Man, what comfort. What comfort for all humanity. In fact, this is one reason why all humanity stands guilty before God, because in a sense, all humanity experiences this common grace of God every day of their lives, whether they realize it or not. The text says that, that God causes the, the sun to shine and the rain to fall, both on the just and the unjust. This is God's common grace to all humanity. He gives life. He gives birth. He gives healing to the sick through the means of grace, the, the common grace of medical care. He provides food. He provides water. He gives breath. He gives life to everyone. All humanity experiences this common grace, but the grace of God also has a saving aspect. This grace is freely given, but it also enables and invites human response so that people who are called to behave towards God with worship, gratitude, and obedience. This is, this is God's saving, redeeming grace, where he initiates grace and he awakens the senses, he awakens the spirit to respond and to worship. And this is the kind of saving grace that we as Christians experience in Christ through the gospel, the good news of Jesus. But it doesn't just enable and invite us to respond by faith and repentance. It causes us or compels us to behave towards God in, in certain ways, by worship, gratitude, and obedience, and towards one another. Don't miss that. In ways that reflect and broadcast the graciousness of God. So here it is. As Peter is talking to us about grace, and he's inviting us in and praying and wishing that we would be overwhelmed by the grace of God in our lives, he's, he's praying this, in a way that he wants us to desperately know and experience it. So our lives are transformed. One person said it this way, how is it that you can experience the grace or the mercy of God and not be changed by it? The response? You can't. You can't truly know and experience the grace of God and not be changed by it. So Peter says, look, you have found the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stand in it, experience it, and let it transform your life. In fact, in the first chapter, 
you should see some amazing things. That those first verses, uh, verses 3 down to 9, are sort of the outline of the book and the themes emerge from that. But, but just one that I want to hi- highlight in verse 6, as people have experienced the grace of God, he says, in this you rejoice. Well, good, yes, we would, of course. Who, who would not want to rejoice in the grace of God that's saving us and redeeming us and restoring us? But in what context? Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, this kind of grace allows us, this experience of grace allows us, even when we face suffering and difficulty and trials, to rejoice. Where the world would look on, they they would hear cancer, they would hear death, they would hear broken relationships. Why is there cause of rejoicing in this? Yet for those of us who have experienced the grace of God, Peter says, rejoice. And in fact, here's the beauty of this language. Peter uses several times in this book words like rejoice. And in the original language, it's a little bit ambiguous whether he is giving a command that you should rejoice, or he's simply stating a fact that you are rejoicing. And in some ways, here is, the, here is the exhortation to all of us today. Some of us are rejoicing. And some of us need to hear the command to rejoice. And you know what? Maybe that's true of each of us individually at the same time. Because we struggle like this. We struggle to rejoice and we rejoice. And we plead with God and say, God, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm trying to rejoice, help me to rejoice. Here, Peter, speaking from experience and understanding what it means to suffer for his faith, to suffer for doing what is good, writes from this framework. The, the theme of Peter is not suffering, but it is the framework of the book. And through that framework, especially, and from that platform, we see the manifold manifold grace of God on display in an extravagant way. And it's right here, especially in this idea that Christians especially can rejoice through difficulty. And as we go through the book, this will be unpacked for us more and more. Let's look at the text, though. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12 we see this first, well, this next use of the word grace. Peter writes this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. You can read the rest of that text there. But really, what he unpacks is the the prophecy of the Messiah who would come. And then he talks about the, the gospel that had been proclaimed to these believers by missionaries or by other evangelists, by other believers, this grace of God that had been proclaimed by the Spirit. And you have this aspect of the grace of God that that transcends time. In the past, it was prophesied by the prophets. In the present, you're experiencing it. As you have heard the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and your life is being transformed. But also, you see next, there's a future aspect. 
verses 13 to 15. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace that is to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. And what a phenomenal thing. There's past grace, there's present grace, and there's future grace. And in this context, it seems like Peter's beginning to unpack the idea for us that the present grace, the the manifold kindness and compassion and care and restoring power of God at work in us, that which we are experiencing right now gives us hope for the future grace. And as we consider this future grace of the coming of Christ, gives us hope to continue to persevere in faith now. So he says, those obedient children don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Hey, here it is. You've tasted the grace of God. You've tasted the goodness of God, as he says in another place. Don't turn away from that. Don't, don't turn back. In fact, in chapter 4, he says, he says this. It's, you've spent enough time living like Gentiles. You've spent enough time living in the, the fleshly desires of the world. And now you've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection and life. So now live. No longer for yourself, but for the will of God. So there's this transformation taking place. So this present grace transforms us, and the hope of future grace transforms us. But just as he called you as holy, verse 15, so be holy. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Don't comply with the old ways. Rather, be holy in everything. Don't turn back. The grace of God compels us. Don't turn back. Persevere. The next use of this word comes up in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 to 20. And I'll just be straight with you here. This is a difficult text. And we're going to unpack it. We're going to walk through the meaning of this text and how we bridge the, um, the context from the past to the present. But here I just want you to notice the big idea. Peter's addressing slaves, household slaves, household servants. He says to them, servants, slaves, be subject to your masters with all reverence. And this strikes us. Not only to those who are good and gentle. That is, those who are actually full of grace. Those, those who are believers. Those who have experienced grace. That's probably what he has in mind. Not only to those, but also to those who are perverse. Those who treat you unkindly. Those who don't know the grace of God. Those who have not experienced it. Those who are not showing it. Therefore, those who are not believers. He says this, for this finds God's favor. That's the word grace. This finds God's favor. If because of conscience towards God, or because you are mindful towards God in this situation, someone endures hardship unjustly, God looks on this with favor. Really? That's tough. And here, in some ways, seems to be the theology of suffering in a sort of in a compact summary for us as believers. We may not identify with the idea of being a slave or a servant, but at some point, I think we do all identify with the reality of being treated unjustly and unfairly, even when we do what is good and right for the sake of Christ. So he goes on. 
For what credit is it if you sin and are mistreated and, and endure it? There's really none, right? There's no credit if you sin. Nobody really feels sorry for you if you sin. You murder, you break a law, you're thrown into jail, you do your time, you pay your fine. Nobody really feels sorry for you or looks on you and says, ah, we should give him a grace. Everybody realizes there should be punishment, there should be justice. But, but if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor, this finds grace with God. For to this you were called, and this is the other aspect that is difficult, for this you were called. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. And in chapter 2, those next few verses, let me just read that. Follow with me, verses 21 to 25. Pick up verse 22. He, He committed no sin. This is the example we're called to follow. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Wow. He, the Son, entrusted himself to the Father that this was the good will of the Father, and he's willing to trust the one who is sovereign and control as a human in the incarnation. And this is our example to continue to trust the one who is sovereign and control over all things, and that in the end, he's the one who judges justly. Christ died unjustly. He suffered unjustly. The just one suffered and died for the unjust, you and I. And here it is this morning for us to consider. In some ways, this is Peter's gospel appeal to you who might be here in this assembly who have not turned and entrusted your soul to the only one who judges justly. This is Peter's appeal to you this morning. Look, this just one Christ, he didn't sin. There was no reason for him to die. There was no reason for him to lay down his life for you. Except he willingly and lovingly and graciously obeyed so that you could have life. So you could have freedom from sin. So that you could live out a new life that he gives. Look at verse 24. Here's what happened in his death. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that you, we, might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, the transforming power of God's grace. Are you trapped and enslaved by your sin this morning? Here's the hope. Here is the living hope of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died, bore our sins in his body, and rose from the dead so that we could be free from sin. By his wounds, by his wounds you have been healed. You are broken, 
you are sick in need of the great physician, the great healer, and this is how he has accomplished it, the medicine, the costly medicine of the death of Christ on the cross for you. And here's the glory. Here is the glory of the good news of those of us who have responded. He says this, For you were straying like sheep. You were wandering around in the field without a shepherd, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, and now you're finding life and joy and freedom that God intended for you to experience. How? Because you've turned away from your sin and you've turned back to Christ and you're living out the righteousness that he is accomplishing in you and through you through the power of the Spirit. Here's the hope of the gospel. The next text in 1 Peter 3, 7. Next time this word is used. And this is just a summary statement. Well, like I said, we'll come back, I'll have to come back to this. But here, Peter writes, Husbands, in the same way, treat your wives with consideration as the weaker partners and show them honor as fellow heirs of what? Of the grace of life. And in this way, husbands, nothing will hinder your prayers. See, grace, once we experience it, once we're living in it, once we understand it, it begins to change all of our relationships. It changes how we view one another in Christ. It changes our our marriage relationships. It changes our family relationships. It changes our work relationships. It changes the relationships of every single person in the body of Christ. And here specifically, he challenges husbands with this idea. Husbands, don't look down on your wives and don't treat them in a way that's not fitting of a co-heir of the grace of life with you. See, here's what the grace of God does. It, it actually restores the relationships, especially in the home, and especially in the family, especially in the marriage, to what God originally intended it to be. He restores it. He renews it. He helps us see that we are fellow heirs together. Here before our eyes, in our marriages and families, God, through his grace, is reversing the curse of sin and how it's destroyed our relationships. And he's bringing us back together in unity. And in chapter 4, this principle of how we view one another in the church gets developed even further. Peter says this, verse 10, just as each one has received a gift And the word there is rooted in the idea of grace. It is a grace gift. Just as each one has received this grace gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies, so that in everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. So here we see this principle that as we begin to view one another through the lens of grace, it changes how we view one another. It changes how we treat one another. It changes how we interact with one another. It changes how we value one another. Instead of just looking at one another and recognizing all the differences and being sort of repelled by the differences that we see or the things that we don't like, instead we start to look at one another and and recognize, no, this person is um, manifesting to me the grace of God in a unique way. This person has been given a unique gift of God to this body. 
So we hold one another in high esteem. And then the challenge here is this. As you have been gifted, whether in word or to serve, which is really a summary of the gifts that are listed in the way that Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 12, of how the body functions together, if you're gifted in word or if you're gifted to serve, do it with all your energy for the glory of God. Don't, don't view your giftedness and how God has blessed you and poured out his manifold grace on your life in a, in a selfish way. It's like, oh, well, you know, I don't really want to do that. No, do you see yourself as a critical part of the body of Christ? And do you see one another as a critical part of the body of Christ? Do you honor one another this way? Do you view one another, every one of us, as a unique gift and display of the manifold grace of God to us? Or do you kind of rub up against people sometimes and turn away, and as you reject them, you're actually rejecting an experience of the grace of God? Man. Peter says, don't do that. This is what it means to par- partly to stand in firm in the grace of God. Stand firm in the church. Stand firm side by side with one another. Recognize that you need every single believer seated around you here this morning to experience and understand and grow and stand firm in the grace of God. Then we move to chapter 5. The final few statements here. This idea of how we treat one another, live one another, continues. He says, in the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And God will exalt you in due time if you humble yourselves under his mighty hand by casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Now, a lot of times we quote this text and I think sometimes we actually rip it out of its context a little bit. And here we see the context clearly, though. There's going to be tensions. There's going to be cares in the context of a local church between one another, between how the authority of the local church leads and how the members follow and how the members interact with one another and how the leaders lead. And there's a whole context of this, but here it is. God says through Peter to us, all of you live with humility toward one another. And as you live in humility, every one of you towards one another this local church is going to experience the outpouring of God's grace on us corporately. That's when we'll begin to experience the provision of God. Spiritual growth, conversions, effective on mission, when we actually begin to live in humility toward one another. God opposes the proud he gives grace in abundance to the humble. Verse 10. And I love how the letter concludes this amazing promise. And the God of all grace. The God of all grace. There's no, there's no grace outside of him. You want to know grace? Know him. Know Christ. The God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered for a little time. Our suffering is brief. 
This life is brief. This life is a vapor. Therefore, the sufferings that we experience here and now are brief, limited. After you've suffered for a little while, he will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. He's worthy to be trusted. So just as earlier, Peter said, don't turn away to sin. Here now, he pours out the promise and the call to us. Persevere in your faith, even in the face of suffering and difficulty, because the God of all grace sees. He knows. He judges justly. And in the end, whether in this life or the life to come, you will be established and strengthened and set up firm. Why? Because he is the God of all power and the God of all grace forever and ever to all the ages. Amen. There's no God, there's no power greater than him. He is the God of all grace. The final words, stand firm in it. So I've written to you this. I've encouraged you. I've exhorted you. Stand firm in it. Here's the call. Here's going to be the call every week as we unpack every section of this letter. Stand firm in it. This letter is meant to transform us through the grace of God. If you're, if you're coming thinking you're just going to hear a good lecture or a good speech and be entertained and leave unchanged, ask for your money back. We want you to be transformed by the good news, the grace of God that you experience through this letter. So in summary, here are just some final thoughts. As we stand firm in God's grace, here's what will result. We'll regularly remember his grace toward us individually, both his common grace and his saving grace. As we're standing firm in it, we'll remember it. We'll live holy lives that are full of good works in the church and in the society, the culture around us. This kind of living might result in suffering. Fair warning. He says it, it could happen. Be ready. Don't be surprised. Standing firm in grace will result in us humbly dying to self to serve others in the church and outside in word and in acts of service. And standing firm in grace will take our attention and our focus to anticipate the return of Christ where we'll experience the fullness and the completion of this God's grace toward us where we're finally and fully established and strengthened and made firm in union with Christ in the resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for 